What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 160 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't really answer the question first. I'm not answering the question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talking about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com, and you can always reach us by emailing thebeardvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, do some follow-up, and then put on 17 layers of winter clothes, enough to make it impossible to bend our elbows, but warm enough to brave the icy depths of the mailbag where we will answer your questions, comments, and concerns. That's right, baby. (laughs) It's time for another mailbag. (laughs) I did not read that beforehand, and I'm proud of myself for making it through all that without stumbling. (laughs) One of these days, I'm just going to give you an impossibly long run-on sentence. (laughs) So, Andy, here we are, another another 10 episodes. We got this mailbag, and I'm excited to do this. I think we got some some good questions i think we got some questions that are gonna make us think a little bit and that's good yeah you know the more we do these the harder it is to get questions that we haven't answered already and even even questions that we haven't answered various like aspects of multiple times but i think Mm -hmm. i think we've curated a nice little collection here Uh, before we do that though the very first thing we have to do any mailbag episode we have to announce our mailbag winners Yes. So uh, if, if you're not familiar, uh, anyone that leaves a iTunes or Stitcher review, we you've entered yourself into a contest to win some, some Beard Vegan swag. And every mailbag episode, we use a random number generator to pick three random winners. And, and we, we lump together the Stitcher and the iTunes users. So you're all in the running. And we have chosen three people. And... The first person is KK52891. <laughs> Definitely not a robot that we programmed to leave us a positive review. <laughs> so if you are KK52891, send us an email and we will send you some cool stuff. Andy, who's the second winner? Uh, well, I just want to point out that KK252891 uh, said, we're almost like friends. Oh, So close. Nice. Like friends you can't talk to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Our second winner is, well... <clears throat> There's a snag here, Paul. <laughs> the second winner we came up with was Janie Cake, but in Janie Cake's review said that they don't want a sticker and to give it to another Beardo. So we decided, well, let's just go to the one Beardo review right before that. So actually, it's going to be Jay Lee Savigan. Yeah. Yeah, and and it, 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 Andy, the, the review that Janie Cake left was a very nice, positive review. It wasn't just a one star, don't want a sticker, F you guys. I like the person that listens enough to know about the review contest and the sticker aspect, but still hates us and leaves a really negative <laughs> review. So yeah, thank you. Thank you to Janie Cake for leaving this review, and, and thank you to Janie Cake for forfeiting your sticker to Jaylee Savikin. Say vegan. Say vegan. You know, I always read that as like savage vegan, but I guess it's not. Save vegan, perhaps. Maybe they're part of the save movement. I don't know. Maybe. Oh. All right. Our final winner is Rachel.G22, who this is the oldest review that, that won today, who said that Rachel enjoys listening to us while training for a half marathon. 
Yeah, and this was back in 2017. So, Rachel, I hope that that marathon went well, if in fact it, it did happen. So, good luck in the past. Yeah, so if any of those are you, KK52891, Jaylee Savvegan, or Rachel G22, send us an email to thebeardvegans at gmail.com and hit us up with your address. We'll send you out a button and sticker, maybe some other little goodies as well. And it's, you know, this is a contest that runs in perpetuity. So no matter when you leave a review, you are always entered. You're always in the running. So if you have not won yet, your day could come. Your day could come. And these reviews, you know, we do this contest because we think it's fun. We like giving out free stuff to people. But also these reviews do help us. So if you like what our podcast is all about and you want us to be higher up in the search rankings for people looking for a vegan podcast, Go ahead, leave us a review. Paul, our our pristine five-star rating on iTunes recently dipped down to an, a four-and-a-half-star rating. <laughs> I feel like we need the beardos to come to our defense and get us bumped right back up. It's a questionable system, though, because we have overwhelmingly more five stars than anything else. And I don't know. I don't know. Andy, I love this contest, if only for the fact that I get to hear you say the word perpetuity once every (laughs) 10 weeks, which is pretty much the only time that I ever hear anyone say that word. And I've heard you probably say it more than, than, than I'll probably ever hear in my entire life. Well, clearly you don't watch the show Shark Tank because (laughs) the word perpetuity is used often by Mr. Wonderful on that show. (laughs) Clearly I do not. All right, Paul, before you ask me what I've been eating, I just want to say this is actually going to be the last regular, regular episode of the year for us. Don't worry. We still got fresh new content coming at you for the rest of the month. Uh, We're going to be putting up some interviews and we will be announcing those as they come out. I'm really excited about putting those up. It's a a nice opportunity for us to chat with some people that we admire. Yeah. Thank you to everyone for such a wonderful, wonderful 2018. Yeah. Thank you so much. And yeah, so we got, we got some changes coming up, but I think, I think everyone's going to like them. I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) So Andy, something that's never going to change, I hope. What have you been eating? Paul, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida right now. Nice. And not not a city known for its amazing vegan food by by any stretch. <laughs> but I will say that I got to try the German Schnitzel House. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> uh it is a a place that if I was not told they had lots of vegan options on the menu, I would just assume that they have zero anything at all for vegans like probably even their salad is not vegan but mm-hmm. turns out lots of clearly labeled vegan items on the menu and this is it's all like german food so you and things that i assume are relatively traditional and some things that seem like a little less traditional like they have the impossible burger there in a couple of different varieties but they also have a traditional german soft pretzel which is a, oh. a little different than the type of pretzel i'm used to but it's still very good Came with a variety of dipping sauces, uh, the best of which, of course, was this this beer cheese dip, which was just really good, really, really good. Um, but I got to try spatzel for the first time. No idea uh, what that is. Same. I also had zero idea what that was, but I was like, well, if this is a traditional dish, I need to try it. What it is traditionally is an egg-based noodle, which is kind of small and short, and I would describe the texture as being somewhat gnocchi-like. Sort of like a little light and fluffy kind of. 
and I have to say, it was pretty dang good. It was pretty dang good. And they also have, you know, they have uh, bratwurst and, and some sausages I believe they get from the Zen Butcher, which I have not had yet. But I thought it was just really cool to, to go to this place that one would assume is very much not catering to vegans. And in fact, they had a wide variety of things, all very clearly labeled on the menu. Once a bunch of us there were ordering all the vegan stuff, the the server asked if we were all vegan and, and was really on top of things and knew what was what and what to recommend. So really great, really great experience at the German schnitzel house. Nice. That's awesome. All right. So, Paul, let's move on into some follow-up. We recently did that story, the news story that was about how uh, a lot of the slaughterhouses in the UK were having problems finding enough workers to process all the animal flesh and dead carcasses that they normally would, especially for the holiday season. I think they were down 15%. And we were talking about how, oh, we're going to look at this as a really positive thing because that mean that probably or potentially means that there's enough people that are their their conscience is telling them that they will not participate in that work anymore and we were sort of musing about the makeup the 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 demographic makeup of the body of workers over there and how you found that statement on the like meat packers association website <laughs> or something it was basically saying like that they didn't use that much migrant labor Mm-hmm. And we got a really interesting uh, Instagram message from Sarah over in Germany who uh, shed some light on the, the numbers that they're putting out there. Yeah, so let me read this one quick. So this is from Sarah. Hey, guys, just FYI, the number of migrant workers in UK slaughterhouses looks smaller than it is because we say EU. But our migrant workers come from poorer EU countries like Poland. When Polish people first started coming to the UK, that was the only job they could get. Now we have finally accepted them and therefore they can get better jobs. Brexit will also play a role in the lack of people because many people are moving back to their country of origin. So I guess that kind of deflates our theory that it's just uh, a lot of people that are saying, I can no longer perform this labor. Um, you know, Again, we, we did give the caveat that hey, this is not our country and we're not as informed on all the, the nuances and the ins and outs and what have yous of, of over there. But uh, I feel like that kind of def- deflates me a little bit, Paul. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't know. If they're still taking, if, if they're still feeling the hurt from it all, I guess that's a good thing. If the meat, the meat industry, that is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it feels like it's good if it hurts the industry, but it's, you know, we kind of, we would like it to be for for some specific reasons. Ultimately, I guess it doesn't really matter, except we do want like a societal shift in the way people see animals and mm-hmm. the, you know, what they're willing to participate in directly. But I don't know. Thank you. Thank you to Sarah for, for shedding some light and setting us straight on that one. Yeah. And then we were also talking about in a recent episode, our anxiety about the climate change situation and how it all feels very hopeless. And Andy, it seems like you got some follow up on that. Yeah, well, I will say at the end of the episode, and I'm always like, who makes it to the end of our episodes? <laughs> we mentioned how you know we wanted people's emails to know how they were feeling. And we got a few uh, from people that were feeling very similar to how I had been feeling, which is pretty downtrodden about the whole thing and feeling a lot of anxiety and depression um, uh, specifically about all this horrible news about climate change and sort of the ticking clock that we have to to set things straight and it feels like 
how in the world can we get this global shift? Um, but we also asked for people to send dog pics to us to send us up. <laughs> and I am happy to report that we got a whole flood of dog pics. And yes. I just want to say thank you to everyone that sent those in. Every single every single dog is a beautiful and miraculous creation. And we, you know, dogs are too good for us, but I'm glad they grace us with their presence anyway. <laughs> so thank you to everyone that that sent in so many wonderful pics, often accompanying with stories about their their furry little pups. So uh, that was amazing, and it was great to see how many people actually make it to the end of the episode. A dab. All dogs are beautiful. Exactly. So, Paul, the real reason I also wanted to bring this up was because in that episode, we talked about climate change causing depression. And the article that you brought to the table was about it's sort of like an extension of how I was feeling, which was sort of this this sort of sense of dread and anxiety about the future. And you brought this article that was talking about parents sort of questioning their choice to become parents, knowing mm-hmm. that this world seems to be falling apart pretty pretty steadily and and so that was that was sort of like an extension of how I was feeling and then I would just happen to be poking around on the internet the other day and I found a couple of articles that sort of lay out that 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 sort of I feel like that sense of dread that I've been feeling and that those parents are feeling is sort of this like almost external perceived sense of dread and I found a bunch of articles they're saying like no there is actually a correlation between climate change and depression so I found this a study over at nature.com, which was actually done July 23rd of 2018. That's when it was published. And the title of the study is Higher Temperatures Increase Suicide Rates in the United States and Mexico. Hmm. So let me read the abstract that came with this study. Linkages between climate and mental health are often theorized, but remain poorly quantified. In particular, it is unknown whether the rate of suicide, a leading cause of death globally, is systematically affected by climatic conditions. Using comprehensive data from multiple decades for both the United States and Mexico, we find that suicide rates rise 0.7% in U.S. countries and 2.1% in Mexican municipalities for every 1 degree Celsius increase in monthly average temperature. This effect is similar in hotter versus cooler regions and has not diminished over time, indicating limited historical adaptation. Analysis of depressive language in greater than 600 million social media updates further suggests that mental well-being deteriorates during warmer periods. We project that unmitigated climate change could result in a combined 9 to 40,000 additional suicides, uh, 95% confidence interval on that across the United States and Mexico by 2050, representing a change in suicide rates comparable to the estimated impact of economic recessions, suicide prevention programs, or gun restriction laws. So basically, in months that are hotter, there are higher suicide rates, and that across like all different types of climates, even in like colder climates, if it's hotter than it normally has been, um, those increase. And then the little caveat they include is we find a very consistent relationship between temperature increases and increases in suicide risk, uh, Burke said, who is one of the people involved, adding that the study findings in no way suggest that temperature is the only or most important factor associated with suicide. Suicide is a very complex phenomenon. It's still not that well understood, and there are many other risk factors beyond climate that are important for suicide risk. So they're, they're, you know, they're smart enough to know it's like it's clearly not just the only thing, but that it seems to be some sort of indicator. And I, I don't know, I found that to be really uh, depressing, and, but also very illuminating. Yeah, I, I think that the the title is misleading of this article. I, I mean, I think what Andy, what you were reading was from a study, right? And mm-hmm. not that like not 
nature nature.com i'm assuming did not do the study it was they were reporting on someone else's study but well this was no this is just straight up the study is posted there okay because it that doesn't say that higher temperatures increase the suicide rates it's not that there's one is it's not that it's necessarily causing it there's a correlation between the two that's what this study seems to see seems to be saying but i don't think it's saying that one that it's causing the other one yeah so. i mean i think that that's what that caveat at the end was basically to say that you know causation and correlation are not necessarily the same thing but that they they do correlate and that there could be something there yeah that yeah, uh, definitely and then I That's... found another article over at The Independent, which is from October 14th, 2018, which says climate change already causing increases in stress, depression and negative mental health study shows. This is a different study. Scientists analyzed data from nearly two million U.S. residents who reported the state of their mental health for 30 days with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention between 2002 and 2012, coupling this with climate data. On average, months with temperatures above 30 degrees Celsius or more than 25 days of rainfall saw increased reports of stress, depression, and, quote, problems with emotions. Alarmingly, Dr. Obradovich, which is... (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, Doc. Uh, Their team also found that women and those on low incomes were 60% more likely to report mental health problems as a result of weather than the highest earners. Delving deeper into the findings, the good doctor said, one of our theories is it's possibly being driven by the effects of higher temperatures upon sleep. However, there's a lot of other ways it could be happening. He believed other possible factors could include the negative effects of heat upon an individual's productivity and cognitive function or impact upon the brain's ability to regulate emotion. Uh, the doctor also pointed out the study did not take into account the impact the ex- existential risk of climate change could be having upon our collective mental health or harder to quantify symptoms of climate change, such as rising sea levels. And that's, that's where we come in and we report the, the, that article that we talked about. What was that last week, two weeks ago? And that two was uh, two Three two weeks, weeks ago. ago when people are hearing this, but for us it was yeah, just a few yeah, days yeah. ago. <laughs> <laughs> but so yeah, I, don't know, I, I I also f- I, just, I found like a, a a wide range of other articles that were all sort of talking about this, and maybe there isn't a direct correlation, but it just feels like um, f- for those that are sort of feeling this, it it may not just be some sort of perceived threat that there may actually be some you know causing some sort of physical change in us or affecting you know in terms of like maybe it affects your sleep maybe it affects all all of these different things um and some articles were saying like you know it doesn't necessarily mean that these rates will continue to decrease as the temperature goes up and perhaps we'll be we'll be able to adapt but also that first article that first study was saying that historically we have not seen much adaptation to increasing heat so i don't know again the whole thing is is very um depressing to me paul that's it's really wild andy i i like when we talked about it the other week that made sense to me this feeling of this existential kind of dread about the climate change and about the impending doom but i if you had asked me i would have said that it was, I would not have guessed that there was something like this also happening where it's literally, it's possibly affecting us on a physical level as well, which is, it's, that's wild. I, I had no idea. 
Yeah. And then that whole bit about how it's going to affect women and lower income earners across the board. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm assuming because those that have more income probably feel like they are better prepared to handle the oncoming apocalypse, but maybe they also just have more money to pay for air conditioning and, and yeah. you know, climate change in their own individual homes. So I feel like those two things alone could probably account for, for that difference. Yeah, that's man. That's wild. That's doesn't make me feel any better, Andy. <laughs> and on that note, let's move on to the mailbag. <laughs> because the mail never stops. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. There's never a let up. It's relentless. Every day it piles up more and more and more. And you got to get it up. And the more you get out, the more it keeps coming in. And then the barcode reader breaks. And it's published. It's clearing out. All right, all right, all right. When you control the mail, you control information. All right, Paul, these are listener questions, comments, and concerns. These are things that people send us to our email at thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. We always sort of prompt people for, for mailbag questions via our Instagram and our Facebook as well. Some of them are coming from Facebook messages. But if you want to get your mailbag questions in for future episodes, email always the best way because that way it's really hard for us to lose track of them. But let's start with some light questions, Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to get into some pretty heavy ones, but uh, Andy, kick us, kick us off with this first one. All right, Paul. So this first one comes to us on Instagram from Indigo Micro asking the hard-hitting questions. What are your favorite vegan holiday dishes, and did any of those change after going vegan? So I, for in, in terms of non-dessert foods, I would say... It did change after I was going vegan. After going vegan, because I, I am fortunate that that I've always been, you know, very close with my family around the holiday times, and we've always had these big family dinners. And certainly, that did change from eating, you know, the turkey or the chicken or the the ravioli or the eggplant parmesan, whatever it was. Those were kind of always the main things. And then when I went vegan, obviously couldn't do the turkey anymore. My family would always try to have, you know, if they were, if they had eggplant Parmesan, they would try to make one that was like a smaller dish that was vegan. So I was luckily still able to eat a lot of these tradition, Paul traditional dishes. But I think the main tradition, Paul tradition, I was going to say Paul, Paul additional, but (laughs) tradition, Paul. Um, but I will say the my main <laughs> holiday dish for every big holiday that there's a big dinner always that tofurkey roast i love the tofurkey roast people a lot of people don't like it a lot of people t- say it's very rubbery which i will admit that it kind of is a little bit rubbery but i don't know i just i cannot get enough of that 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 football of of tofurkey um, my family has moved away from the tofurkey roast. We did like a lentil loaf and, and last year we just did a roasted cauliflower that we kind of rubbed with a lot of like, I made like a slurry of nooch and spices and, and olive oil and rubbed that all over it to make a little crust when it baked. Ooh, delicious. And this year I found a recipe actually where you like stuff the cauliflower somehow, like you use a piping bag to like pipe stuffing into the crevices of the cauliflower. So I think I'm going to try that. That seems uh, my... not possible, but okay. <laughs> we'll see how that happens, how, we'll that, how that turns out. All right, Paul. So my favorite vegan holiday dishes, and have they changed? 
I never liked eating the flesh of a turkey at Thanksgiving, for instance. Uh, it, it was always like dry and bland, and it was all about the sides for me. And I'd say mm-hmm. almost every like big holiday dinner where we where we did any of that, the the flesh of the, some carcass of some animal on the center of the table never did it for me. Whether it was like a ham or a lamb or a turkey or whatever it might be, it's so weird that we that we use dead bodies as the center of our holiday celebrations, sort of traditionally across our culture. But for me, it was always all about mashed potatoes and gravy. That is just my number one love of all time. It's so good. Greens, and- beans, potatoes, tomatoes. Exactly. So, well, not the tomatoes, Paul. Get out of here with that <laughs> nonsense, <laughs> at least if they're raw. So for me, the only thing that changed is the gravy, I guess. I love making chickpea gravy. It's like the thing. If I'm only contributing one item to my family's holiday meals, they always ask me to make this chickpea gravy, which I got from Vegan with a Vengeance, which is one of the first vegan cookbooks I ever got and one that has been gifted to me probably four times because people are like, oh, this is kind of punk rock and it's vegan. So here you go, Andy. Uh, that chickpea gravy is great. It's very adaptable. It doesn't have to be specific. There's kind of like an overall method, but in general, it can take whatever spices you want to give it. I like making it a little bit spicy. And so, so I can honestly make chickpea gravy and mashed potatoes or like some some guardian tenders or something like that and to me that's a delicious meal so that's always been my favorite thing and some other stuff you know i really like the green bean casserole but i found a a pretty solid vegan version of that last year so uh, i feel like nothing like really changed it was never like the animal flesh that i that i loved i can attest to that green bean casserole andy i had that you made that on new year's eve i believe and my god that was delicious (laughs) Yes, yeah, for our little Friendsgiving. We, Paul and I have a tradition. We do a little Friendsgiving on New Year's Eve with a bunch of our friends and partners. So yeah, it's a good time. Love to cook a lot of food. Paul, there's also a little follow-up question here. We got an email from Garrick S. who asked, what's your favorite kind of Christmas cookie? So my, uh, my grandmother always made for Christmas these candy cane sugar cookies. And it was like, I'm pretty sure it was just... She would take the same dough, she would take the dough, split it into two pieces, and then just food color one of the one of them red, and then kind of use these two doughs to twist it to to twist it into like a candy cane shape. But I always think that the red the red dough tasted different than the other (laughs) dough, and and those were always my that that for me that was those candy cane cookies were synonymous with with Christmas for me. So those are my. Those are my favorite Christmas cookies. I think the difference with the red dough is that it's it's colored with the blood of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> That's probably that was probably it. The, probably why the it secret taste ingredient. So good. Also not <laughs> vegan. My favorite Christmas cookie, straightforward sugar cookie. I have fond memories of baking with my my mom or my aunt and my sister around Christmas time and the kind where you sort of roll it out and you use the cookie cutters to make various shapes and then you make a little icing to decorate them and I think those are just to me that's always the classic Christmas cookie there you go there you go all right let's move on into this second question this is from Instagram from love Linz. love Linz. a lot of z's Andy if you ever wanted to give up the van life and settle in one place where would it be great question love Linz. So if I had no other factors to consider, if I had if I didn't have like loved ones to consider or 
you know, VegFest proximity to consider. I think I would love to live in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a city that I love. I love. Obviously, there's tons of great vegan food. There's lots of independent movie theaters. There is, I think, pretty solid public transportation. It's easy to navigate. So I, I, I guess that would probably be my number one. I also really like Austin, Texas. That's a place that I could see myself living at some point uh, for a number of reasons. And then my third place, honestly, I really like spending time in Los Angeles um, because it has a lot of things that I really like to do there. And there's people there that I like to see. So I think those would be my three. If I was like, you know, I'm going to live somewhere totally different than the East coast. You know, new England always has my heart. I always love the vibe there. But if I was to say, let me try something wildly different than what I'm used to, those would probably be my top three places to go to. I feel like you haven't been to Los Angeles since your escape room craze, Andy. And I, I imagine there's a lot of good escape rooms in LA. Oh, I, I already have one. That's like, there's this, I started listening to an escape room podcast. Oh I'm, I'm deep down the hole folks. I'm deep down the hole folks. <laughs> and they rave about this place in, in Los Angeles all the time. So I am so excited to, to go there and try and convince some friends to join me. Any any Florida escape rooms, Andy, that you've been to? Well, I just did one in Tampa that I thought was pretty great. Although the one that I really wanted to do is is a skunk ape themed, which is like Florida's Bigfoot, basically. And apparently it's pretty amazing. So uh, and I also just did one. I have done two in Jacksonville since I've been here. So, you know, I'm knocking them out. I'm knocking them out. Also, this, if if, you, if the listener hasn't picked up on this yet, that that escape room podcast that Andy was just referencing, that's his podcast. This is a fight. <laughs> this is a Fight Club situation. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know that's a good question. Those are things I think about. There's a lot of logistic reasons that would prevent me from moving to any of those places, but um, they are places that I could see myself living if there were no other outside factors to consider. Nice. Nice. All right. So, Paul, you know, we normally have a nice collection of really kind of silly, goofy questions along those lines. And normally those come from Instagram. I feel like Instagram dropped the ball on that one. So we're just going to make a nice transition into some very heavy territory pretty quickly. In their defense, we did not give them that much time because (laughs) I I made an Instagram video that basically said, hey, we're on top of things for once and we're going to record this episode two weeks in advance so get your questions in now so we didn't give them we didn't give the beardos as much time as we normally do but but thank you to those who did who did send stuff in yeah shout out to the beardos that are really on top of their crap so <laughs> this email is coming to us from amber b i've been vegetarian for most of a decade i started off my journey as a 30-day health trial and binged all the information i could find i'm now vegan for the animals mostly i've been wanting to do more I even started fostering sick kittens so they aren't put down. But like you guys, I'm very introverted. I can't defend veganism in a debate. I feel extremely discouraged when bombarded by constant comments saying I'm not really making a difference. I try to focus on buying local and helping my community, but it seems people only want to argue hypothetical large-scale vegan politics and then go about their day without anything being accomplished. All the arguments and talk with no action really discourages me. Sometimes I feel like falling back into vegetarianism because it was more carefree. What do you do when you feel discouraged? Or how do you open up a dialogue that isn't just crushing you? Thanks, Beardos. Paul, heavy Mm -hmm. stuff. Definitely heavy stuff. I I think I just want to say that 
to Amber or to anyone that's that's feeling this this particular way, which I don't think is uncommon. You know, I think merely the fact that you came to this realization that you said you're doing this mostly for the animals. So to me, that says you came to this realization where you had to reflect upon what you were doing with your actions, especially because you were vegetarian for most of a decade. So, you know, it, it was probably like you, you're, you're doing something and then you realize that what you're doing might not be in alignment with, or you might not feel good about this. It might not be in alignment with your ethics. And then you made a change because of that. And I think that fact alone is something that is, that is worth, you know, worth, applauding and is 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 a difficult change it's not difficult for every any everyone but it's difficult for many people to make a lifestyle change like this so it's like you did take action on something that you deemed not consistent with your beliefs and and i do think that that's that's something that's great and that's something that you should feel great about and and you you know you've also said that you're fostering sick kittens it's it's like you are doing things and and i would i would i i'm not telling you how to feel but but definitely you should not you know n don't forget about the things that you already are doing because you you are doing a lot of great things so that's i i believe that that is something to feel good about and then transitioning over into the like the introverted nature of things and and feeling like you're not doing so great when it comes to the the debates you know it, merely being vegan in this very non-vegan world those those sorts of debates are going to be brought upon you at times even when you don't feel like talking about them and i, I would say maybe you know if you think about the types of things that have been brought up when you're in these debates that have kind of flummoxed you a little bit think about them and if you want you know think about them and and try and come up with some things that you can say so that the next time that it does happen you know what you know what you're going to say and and I don't think you know you should necessarily have a this robotic response for every single thing that's thrown at you but if if you're like me where <laughs> and I think like a lot of people where you're in an argument with someone and then three days later you're in the shower and you're like, you think of the perfect response to that, that argument that just happened. And you're like, Oh, why couldn't I have thought of that <laughs> in that moment? But luckily with the vegan debates, oftentimes similar arguments will come up. So I think just having some general responses that you can fall back on might be it might be a good thing to have and, and and even if those responses are because you know you're not you are not obligated to be in this argument with this person so even if those responses are something that says something along the lines of you know it's like this is this is how i feel and this is how i believe and and i'm doing what what i i'm doing what i'm doing because i think it is the the the, the correct thing for me to do, and I'd rather not have this argument with you. You know, even if you have a response that gets you out of the argument, if you don't want to be having these arguments, I think that that's okay too. So maybe just having some of these, thinking about some of the, what these responses could be beforehand, maybe, maybe that will help. I don't know. Andy, what do you think? All right. Well, there's a, I feel like there's a lot of different sort of questions in here. And I think to just sort of respond to what you just said in terms of like, you don't have to have that, that debate if you don't want to. And as we've talked about in a previous episode, sometimes that can be very much a part of your activism in the form of self-care 
of picking and choosing your battles and not engaging with people that are sort of committed to misunderstanding you and not really getting what you're trying to say. But I also think about advice that Carol Adams gave us, which was you can just sort of say, I learned what happens to animals and I didn't want to participate anymore. And they hit you with blah, 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 blah. And you're like, well, I learned what happened to animals and I didn't want to participate anymore. And you can just have a very simple answer like that if that's all you want to do. The thing that I would like to talk about is sort of this idea that like, I don't feel like I'm making a difference. People tell me that I am not making a difference. And I think it's important for us to recognize as vegans that, you know, us as one single person, it's entirely possible that our personal (laughs) consumer choices do not have an effect on the supply and demand chain. You know, I've read, you know, interesting ways of looking at it being like, well, maybe you as one person doesn't, but but every like 10,000 people that do something on number 10,000, that's like a huge, you know, shift that causes some sort of change. And maybe you're number 10,000, maybe you're not, but you're you're helping somebody reach to be number 10,000. Um, for me personally, the way that I look at it is these are my ethics. The, these are something that I engage in regardless of whether I can prevent other people from doing it, regardless of whether I can stop anyone else from participating. Uh, this is something that I don't believe is right. I don't believe it's right to commodify animals, to use animals, to exploit animals. Therefore, I'm not going to participate in it. So regardless of whether or not I personally have an effect on the the whole system, I still think it's my moral imperative to no longer participate in it. So if someone brings that up, if they say something like, well, you're not making a difference, um, you know, I might ask them, well, do you rob people? And they'll say no and ask them why. Like, well, that's unethical. And you're like, well, you can't, there's so many robberies that are happening out there. Like you haven't stopped all of them. So why don't you just start going and robbing people? You know, and they're like, well, I just don't think it's the right thing to do. And I think that's the way that you can look at veganism. And I just feel like it's, it's sort of a, a distraction when people kind of say that, because it's really, you know, Paul, you say this all the time, when people bring these things up, what they're really looking for is a way for them to feel better about their choices. They're looking for some flaw in your ideology or your ethics and that if they can find some little thing where like, well, you're not even making a difference. So I might as I, I am totally okay to go out and knowingly cause tons of harm to animals. Uh, that it's just a way of making themselves feel better. So uh, you can, I personally just say, these are my ethics and that's what I'm sticking by. I, I don't like to hurt animals. Do you like to hurt animals? You know, who likes to hurt animals kind of thing. Um, so that's sort of kind of where I fall back on all of those things when people say you're not making a difference. Um, and it sounds like you personally are making a difference. You know, something like fostering a sick kitten, uh, that doesn't change the world. And this is really cliche, Paul, but you know, it doesn't change the world, but it does change the world for that one animal, like that one animal. Mm-hmm. animals incredibly thankful it's the whole you know the whole story about throwing starfish back in the in the ocean you know you can't save every starfish but the ones that you do makes a huge difference yeah and and andy i think something that you were just saying that that this brought up something for me is that like i completely understand being introverted and not wanting to be in these arguments and 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 i would just maybe i would suggest because People, I, I know this this comes up for me personally where it's like I don't want to be in this argument and I'm sometimes looking for – if it's like an actual argument and not just like a debate and I'm looking for ways to get out of it. But like you just said, Andy, people are looking for you to – to say that say that something that they're doing is okay. They're looking for you to say something like, uh, like oh, well – 
because they'll probably say like, oh, well, you have your you have your views and I have my views and it's okay that we have different views. It's like they, they're probably looking for you to say something like that or something that gives them the okay. And it's it's okay to, to push back against that and to say, no, this is how I feel and and I'm not going to say anything that gives you the okay for for slaughtering animals. And I don't know. I don't know my point in bringing this up, but I, I just think that that's a that's a very common way to get out of an argument like that is to kind of give up some of your some of how you feel. And and I think that that can be for me. It's discouraging to me when something like that happens. If if I'm just so exhausted or stressed out or or fed up with arguing with this person, that's an easy way out of that that argument. But then later on, I'll feel guilty about that, and I'm and I'm like, oh, I basically just gave that person the okay to do this thing. So, I would say, just it's okay to it's okay to have your ethics and morals and to and to stick with those. And yeah, that period, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess overall, Amber, it, like we we are right there with you. It is definitely. It's we totally feel discouraged sometimes about things. You know, we just had the whole episode about feeling discouraged about the environmental stuff, and and yeah, it's I, I would say it's not if 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 nothing else, you know, you're not you are not alone in feeling in feeling these ways about these difficult issues. Yeah, and I think it is important for us, you know, we say this all the time, but to sort of find our sense of community, maybe that means listening to a podcast or two, maybe it means finding a Facebook group or some some IRL friends or something like that. Um, and, and like understand that it's okay. To, I think it's okay to retreat sometimes or, or even often if that's what you need for sort of your own mental health and your own ability to continue to be an activist uh, in whatever form that might take. So I think, you know, to answer that last question, like what do we do? when we're feeling discouraged, um, that's that's something what I do is I try to take care of myself because at the end of the day, that's all I really have. So um, I think that it's important for us to do that and to, you know, give ourselves permission to not engage in these debates if we don't want. You know, we always say it's important to have conversations, not debates or arguments. So, yeah. And as far as opening up dialogue that isn't just sort of crushing to you, I think it is important for us to like we should take charge on framing the issue, framing what it's all about. And maybe it isn't about affecting like supply and demand or something like that, but it's just, it's about me living my ethics. I don't think it's okay to harm animals. I don't think it's okay to exploit animals, to use animals, uh, to take their flesh and secretions without their consent, all these things. So I'm not going to do it. Like frame it that way. Don't let them frame it in in their way. Frame it in the way that you frame your morals and your ethics. And I think you will hopefully find that that is more productive. I know that that's what I try and do. It's like, sort I sort of, I try to set the table for how people look at veganism as opposed to having their, them bring all of their misconceptions about what veganism is all about to the table. Nice. Nice. Thank you, Andy. All right, Paul, before we go mm -hmm. on to these next few questions, we got to thank some people. And in fact, we are recording this so soon after our last one, we only have one person to thank right now. So we, <laughs> we have to give a huge thank you to the rafter for <laughs> increasing their patreon donation multiplied it by 10 paul Ooh. what does that mean <laughs> uh the rafter sounds like a the name of like an assassin in a in a movie <laughs> the rafter oh no the rafter's after me yeah thankfully the rafter is on our side and not trying yes. to kill us unless this is just a scheme to like 
to lure us in and make us feel comfortable and then get us like mm-hmm. when they meet us at a veg fest or something like that but mm-hmm. uh th- thank you <laughs> paul is like shaking his head and saying no that's not the case at all <laughs> hiding hiding in the rafters that's their <laughs> that's their mo and they can only kill people if they're somewhere for there are where there are rafters to hide in yeah this person is 100 percent taking away their donation after hearing this <laughs> this banter uh, but anyway the rafter and lots of other wonderful folks are supporting the podcast by donating a dollar or more per month via our patreon page and what that does is it helps make our podcast more sustainable for us and more accessible in the long run and, you know, anyone who donates at least a dollar gets access to our Patreon feed where we put bonus episodes and other fun content. We are due for a bonus episode, so be on the lookout for that. And people who pledge a little bit more than that can get some merch, some button stickers, T-shirts, and certain levels. You can even get early access to episodes. And we often post those uh, usually three days early, sometimes just a day early. But uh, if you are hankering for a hunk of that Paul and Andy, you can uh, <laughs> do that and you can get it before everybody else. So that's a fun little perk there. So if you want to get in on that action, you want to help the podcast and uh, help yourself as well, just go to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo. And there'll be options for recurring, single donation, or even just pick up a shirt if you want. So uh, thank you to everyone that helps us out. And I feel like, did not did we do a bonus episode where it was talking about van life? Did we do the Andy van life bonus up yet? No. Well, we should do that. And then we should do one where I just explain some math thing to you. And then... <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking it would be fun. The next time that we hit a milestone where it requires us to do two bonus episodes in one month. I was thinking it would be fun if you interviewed me for one and then I interviewed you for the other. Yeah, that would be cool. So, but we need more money for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I just been watching Space Jam, so now I have the uh, the evil Space Jam overlord stuck in my head with the cigar. Yeah, who I don't think is played by Danny DeVito, but really feels like should have been played by Danny DeVito. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, and let's move on. Continuing with these uh, deeper questions, like the one that Amber just sent us, this one is emailed in from Jennifer W., who said, Hey, Beardos, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the tactic of meat companies blending actual animal flesh with some amount of plant-based protein as means of reducing the overall number of animals killed. Paul, have you heard about this? I feel like in one episode we touched upon this, but then we never delved into it. Yeah, so this is something, this is not super new to me, because I feel like I did see some article recently that was about some restaurant that was serving a burger that was like 30% mushrooms or 40% mushrooms or something like that. That's what it was. Yeah, so um, I recently saw someone shared a post that, was a picture of sausages that were being advertised as, quote, flexitarian sausages. Mm. And on on their advertising, it said that it was 30% plant protein and 70% like pig's flesh, which I was like, wow, that's like really, I, I just, I don't know how I feel about saying that that is a part of being flexitarian. Yeah, that, I feel like you're still eating meat all the time. So it's not like it almost seemed, uh, I don't know, because not that I want to get into this debate of labeling what a flexitarian is with you, Andy, right now, but it means nothing, Paul. (laughs) It means you eat food. Yeah, but it seems like 
I would call someone a flexitarian if maybe, you know, something like 50% of their meals were not meat and then 50% of them had meat. But if all of their meals have meat just slightly less, I would not consider that flexitarian in the slightest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I did a little bit of digging and I found this is actually a company called the Better Meat Company. And that's like their thing. Like that's their new endeavor. And uh, I guess the caveat that I'm going to add before we even talk about this is that one of the people behind this is someone that we listed a lot of offenses in our episode that was all about the Me Too and the animal rights movement. So it seems like this is what this person's kind of moving on to. Uh, So we, of course, do not support them whatsoever. And you can easily find out who by going on their website. But let me just read their little section. They have a section called Why Blend? And it says, we love fully plant-based meats, yet we also know that they still represent less than 1% of the total meat market, both in America and internationally. That's to say that even quadrupling the demand for plant-based meats would result in a situation where still nearly all meat comes from animals. That's why, for example, replacing 30% of beef with mushrooms in the 10 billion burgers served annually in the U.S. would reduce emissions equivalent to taking 2 million cars off the road, according to the World Resources Institute. So... Uh, Paul, yes, Andy. <laughs> I'm just wondering how many meat companies are going to want to adopt this because I feel like for most people that wouldn't be a plus. Like people think of meat that has like some kind of filler in it, like a sausage, is like a, a, a low rent version of meat. Like it's not a pure thing, and that it's like that's what you know low income people eat or that's what you know they serve in like a school lunch or something like that you know it's hard for me to imagine enough people wanting to adopt this yeah of of all the you know kind of ways that the meat industry or just people in general are trying to reduce meat while still eating meat this seems like one that should have been vetoed on the idea floor like that someone came up with this and then someone else would be like, no, that's not going to take off. So I, I don't know. Maybe it will take off. But is uh, like regardless of whether or not we think that's a good thing, I, I just feel like it's not going to be something that people are into. So why even put so much into this? Yeah. And also, I mean, th- this <laughs> I feel like it's sort of faulty rhetoric, like a faulty narrative that's like, well, even if we quadruple the amount of plant based meats, you know, all we have to do is replace all of the sausage out there with 30 percent animal protein and we'll have a much bigger impact than everyone going, you know, vegan or plant based meats producing. I'm just like, I highly doubt that you're going to get that many people to to add this into their meat product. You know, it's I don't know. It's just it's. I guess people would buy this. I'm just so curious to see if these these products will succeed because on the website they're like anything that's like a chicken nugget or a sausage or a meatball they say that they can put in, you know, 30% of their plant-based protein instead. It's it's hard for me to imagine that that many people would embrace this. Like I don't know, like maybe I'm totally off base. Maybe people are like, "Oh my god, finally, this is how I'm going to eat less meat." But for me, it's kind of like I feel like people that are trying to reduce their meat would just like eat a vegetarian or a vegan meal, but maybe I'm totally wrong on that. It's just, it feels like a weird like market to kind of hit. Like, I think that I'm much more on board with the clean meat or the cell based meat or whatever you want to call it that. I think that that's 
like why are people trying to do i mean i guess it's not a bad thing in general not not looking at the specifics of what this is because i don't think i support this at all but in general i guess it's not a bad thing uh, for people to be for people to say let's try all these different things because one of them is bound to stick but this one just doesn't seem like it's gonna stick at all this one i mean also just doesn't feel like something that a vegan should do this feels like something that someone that doesn't really care about animals or human beings would do Yes, and and <laughs> yeah, it it it's weird that it's a founded by a, a vegan or co-founded by a vegan. Yeah, I don't know, Paul. I guess overall, I am just one. I feel like it's a horrible strategy because it's basically it's like admitting defeat. Essentially, it's like people are never going to stop eating animals, so we should just sort of aim for a thirty percent overall reduction total. You know, like it's it's hard to imagine this is some sort of stepping stone. Like I know I know the foot in the door technique, all that. It's hard to imagine that this is a stepping stone to getting someone. Like it's not like they're gonna be like, now let me try the fifty percent meat blend, and then yeah. you know, and then like slowly wean themselves <laughs> down until they're like, all right, finally I'm gonna try Gardein now. Like oh. I just I don't understand the strategy. Or it's just like in in ten years, someone's someone that's been doing that's been eating this blended burger. All of a sudden, they order a burger, and it's just a burger with one giant mushroom in between two buns. And they're like, "Oh god damn it, they got me." <laughs> guess I'm vegan now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess our overall assessment: we think it's a horrible strategy, and we're skeptical that anyone's actually going to buy into it. Yes, yes. All right, Andy, hit me with this next email. So Michael K emails in. I live in Whitehorse, Yukon in Canada, and there's this growing movement spearheaded by the Yukon Fur Real Group. Website seems to be down at the moment. To promote and reinvigorate the local fur industry. As a vegan, I have an obvious objection to this, but of course things are often, if not always, more complicated than at first glance. I'll use the terms indigenous and first nations interchangeably below. I don't know exactly what they're planning on doing in the short term, some sort of pop-up and advocacy association, it seems, but their long-term goal of a healthy and prosperous fur industry is clear enough. Well, this isn't something I would support personally, I'm wondering if activism to counter their movement is really warranted. Traptors are very often First Nations or Indigenous, although, albeit certainly not exclusively, many settlers, non-Indigenous folks have adopted trapping as a hobby, subsistence, or otherwise. Because this is a traditional activity, albeit one where the entire animal is used and is, quote, harvested with great respect and with ceremony, I am extraordinarily hesitant to advocate against an indigenous practice and mechanism for indigenous sustenance. The past six years of my career have been in support of indigenous self-determination through education, and I try to be a good ally, so I'm sensitive to actions that would negatively impact indigenous communities. Centuries of colonialism in residential schools in Canada and elsewhere, of course, have pushed cultural practices and indigenous independence slash livelihood to the brink, and I am loath to speak out against something that might serve to threaten indigenous interests. This being said, this is not an indigenous-led initiative, and I don't actually see indigenous involvement whatsoever, although it's clear that this would at least accidentally benefit members of the First Nations communities up here and help to garner fair wages for their labor, which has historically been grossly and intentionally undervalued. I'm at a bit of a loss. I haven't spoken out against their efforts, either privately or publicly, but I can't help but think that in a rather small community like this, I would be able to make a difference through effective advocacy. Do you think it's warranted in this case, or would my efforts and energies here actually be counterproductive and harmful to historically and very much still marginalized communities? 
so this is a I think this is a great question. I think this is this is you know there's so many elements to this. It's very nuanced, and we looked at uh, Michael sent us a, a, a news article about this for real group winning this. I think it was sixty thousand dollars or seventy thousand dollars this innovation prize and. Oddly, like I didn't, I tried to Google it a little bit and most of the articles I found just kind of referenced this, them winning this. And this was back in June and there hasn't, like I wasn't really able to find too much more recently. And Michael had said their website seems to be down, but in fact, I think they just haven't created their website yet. It's in this weird state where there's just a lot of gibberish on it, which is ind- indicative that they just haven't filled in the spots for it. Cause it's like a automatically generated paragraph. So I mean, June to, to now, that's not a super duper long amount of time. And, and maybe they're, you know, they're just working out the logistics, but yeah, it was hard to find a lot of information about really what they're doing. And in the article itself, it basically just said that they're trying to disrupt the fur industry and they're trying to like revive, revive a traditional and economy and industry and they want to work directly with the trappers and, and artisans and they want to work directly with people. It didn't have a lot of what they were specifically going to do, but it just kind of seems like oh, instead of a big organization working with the trappers, it's going to be this smaller organization working with the trappers. So I don't know. I I, I don't know that – Like I, I and, and an important thing that Michael did point out is this is not an, an, an indigenous-run organization. I think it, it just seems to be if, – if, like Michael said, obviously we don't – know a tremendous amount about the economy or the demographics of the Yukon. But if if it's just many trappers are indigenous peoples, then that's how it affects – that's how that issue gets brought into it. But I think it it is – Andy, I do think it does make a difference that this is not an indigenous-led organization. They're not the ones getting $60,000 or $70,000. So I don't know. where. Uh, do you want me to – do you want me to say where I come down on this first, or do you want to talk about it a little bit? What do you, what do you, want, to, what do you want to do? Well, I, I guess I'll just say that it, it seems, with the limited information we have, it seems almost like the fur this fur coalition is sort of perhaps attempting to capitalize on the concern that Michael has here, right? Like it's kind of like it's almost like using the plate of indigenous folks to, to, to push this agenda when it's not clear that what they're doing is actually going to directly help them or not. I don't know. I think that, I think that there's a chance that they, they believe that what they are doing is going to help the indigenous people. It is going to help the economy. Like I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that they're coming to this from like a malicious with malicious intent. They not that not to say that what they're doing is going to help these people is going to help the economy necessarily, but I don't necessarily know that their goal is just to make a bunch of money. They could have good intentions just it not necessarily going to be doing good things. I don't know. Yeah, so I guess like with sort of the limited information that we do have here, do we think that if we were in Michael's shoes, like would we advocate against this? I don't know. I guess I guess this wouldn't be my 
this wouldn't be my, like, I wouldn't take this up as my main cause. I certainly don't think I would promote this as a good thing. Uh, but I don't know if I would say, if I was in Michael's position, I don't know if I would speak out against it. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it like you said, there hasn't really been much news on this since June. I, I guess I would, my personal stance would be, I'm going to keep an eye on this and see how things develop. And as things change, that might inform my position on it. I think, I guess in general, sort of where I fall back on is that there's so many other people out there for me to advocate veganism to that sort of taking up these things that feel maybe a little, like niche isn't the right word, but something that's a little more specific of this nature. It feels like counterproductive to me and it's better to just sort of sidestep potentially causing harm to indigenous people by just you know you you can personally be like i don't agree with this but i i understand it and you know just because we disagree with it doesn't mean that that has to be the thing that we spend our our time advocating against and like my personal stance is that you know advocating for a lot of other folks to go vegan that are in the position to easily go vegan um, is a more productive use of my time i think the thing that Michael brings up, though, that is different about this situation is is when Michael says, because this is a relatively small community, speaking out against this could possibly be very uh, effective for this specific issue because Michael is in that position. You know, it's not like us where we wouldn't speak out about this, but we're also not there. Michael is there and knows that they could have an impact about this. And I think that's where it gets trickier. Andy's pointing his finger at me. What do you want to say? Okay, Paul, uh, here is something that I'm ashamed that we haven't brought up until this very second, which is if I was in Michael's shoes, the first thing that I would do was go and seek out people from the affected communities and ask them how they feel about it. Yeah. Is this something that is helping you? Is this someone that's just co-opting your struggle? And I feel like that's probably the best place to start. Like not necessarily I you know turning to us who are so far removed from the situation and 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 sort of going from there. I think that you know, we can do all of it seems like from this email that Michael's probably already in touch with a lot of people if that's, you know, a work, work they've been doing for the past six years. So hopefully that is not too hard to get in touch with with people and see how they are feeling. But I feel like that's probably the very first step that anyone should take before they try and determine what's going to be best for another, you know, culture, another another group of folks that you are not necessarily a part of. So I say that's always step number one. And then yeah. failing that, I, again, I fall back to my position of even this if this is not something that I personally would feel like appropriate or comfortable like advocating for, I think my time would personally be spent better elsewhere. And so that I guess that's sort of where I fall, which is that, you know, th- there are so many other areas where we can be effective that don't necessarily mean engaging in these p- potentially culturally insensitive and and, uh, you know, possibly very damaging forms of activism when we could be doing something that feels a little more safe and it's a little more like talking to our own folks kind of thing. And, you know, I would say, Andy, if I was in, if I was in Michael's shoes, if I did go and talk to that community and overwhelmingly the response was, this is not, this is not going to help us. This is not really for, it's clearly not for us. And, and these people are kind of doing this thing, uh, because maybe they do think it's going to help, but it's not going to help. I think if that's the case, I would feel comfortable speaking out against it then. Yeah, exactly. 
Because as, especially think, especially knowing that, you know, you think that you could have a, an effect on this because it's a smaller community. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that you want to avoid being, um, you know, going in and trying to be the savior for people that maybe feel like they don't need saving or, you know, or, or don't need mm-hmm. your help or they feel like they got it. And it's better if you just sort of fall back to an assistance role or a support role or something like that. So I think those are all important things to keep in mind. Yeah. So thanks for sending this one in. This is a cool, it's, it's like very different, very nuanced. And and yes, thank you for emailing this in, Michael. I hope that you uh, keep us updated with this. All right, Paul, we got one email left. What e- you sure we don't have two emails left, Andy? Two, two mailbag submissions uh, well, left? That's, well, we have one email and one at physical piece of mail. Okay. Thank, thank goodness. Okay. All right, Paul. So this last email comes to us from frequent writer in of the show. That's such an awkward way to say that. Dr. Jalapeno, a.k.a. Jordan, in Colorado. And so this is an email that is in response to our episode that was all about should vegans advocate to conservatives? And, you know, we were sort of saying, of course, you should advocate to your own. Of course, uh, we would like for everyone to be vegan, right? Um, But as a strategy, should the movement specifically be targeting conservatives? This was in relationship to a Gene Bauer interview that happened on Tucker Carlson's show on the Fox News Network. So we got this really thoughtful email from the good doctor. And you want to go ahead and read that, Paul? Yeah, let me read this out. What's up, beardos? My first short answer is that the vegan message should be disseminated to all, be it by word of mouth or on Fox. I believe there are dissenting views on Fox often enough that being on the platform isn't direct endor- isn't a direct endorsement, though yes, sometimes those voices are belittled and disrespected. From this thought, my mind started jumping further and further down this rabbit hole. Here are a few thought experiments that come out of it. One, What if the vegan message became so effective on these platforms that it became more of a mainstay in the conservative platform under a pro-life banner, maybe? How would it make you feel to be part of a movement that is 90% conservative and 10% liberal? I asked this question after hanging out with my brother's lifelong friend this past weekend who went vegan about six months ago, after a 30-day challenge, no less, who is a fiscal conservative social liberal. It was the first vegan I'd ever met with any ties to the conservatives. He brought up how it seemed he was the only one of his kind. And number two, take that one step further. If you could snap your fingers and overnight all white nationalists and neo-Nazis would become vegan. That is a whole bunch of new vegans you have the power to bring into the world at your fingertips, but now the vegan movement is mired with the neo-Nazis. Really, our goal is to create as many vegans as possible. Is this the exception? It seems in this case, the order in which people go vegan matters. I know this is a hypothetical, but veganism and vegetarianism is already somewhat tied to their movements as well. What if it became overtly publicized and tied to vegans? Oh. Dr. Jalapeno, the good doctor, coming in with these tough questions. Yeah. So first, uh, I'll say that I've seen fiscal conservative social liberal described as, I like weed, but I hate poor people. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, these are are really good questions, Paul. Um, They definitely had me thinking. So, all right. So, Paul, let's 
Let's answer this first question first. What if the vegan message became so effective on these platforms that it became more of a mainstay in the conservative platform under a pro-life banner? Maybe I could see that happening. Would it make you? How would it make you feel to be a part of a movement that's ninety percent conservatives and ten percent liberal? I would feel pretty horrible. I think I would not <laughs> feel great about being a part of that movement because, like, by proxy, I guess if people always assumed that anyone who's vegan is pro-life because of how damaging that that I, I should say anti-choice uh, or anti-abortion rather uh, because of how damaging that platform is to folks that can carry children. So I, yeah, I would hate to be a part of that. I would hate to be associated with that nonsense. I, I think, you know, I, I think in general, not to answer that specific question, but in general, you know, we like, I would rather have people be vegan than not vegan, but I don't think that that means that we need to agree on this other stuff. And and I think for me, Andy, the big difference comes in with when I say, oh, would I rather – like if you could snap your finger and all these people would become vegan – the difference comes for me is is are these people just vegan or are they also vegan and in the vegan movement and in the vegan advocacy movement because because I don't want those people in I, I don't want neo Nazis and white nationalists in the vegan movement because and the reason is because I feel like even though they're in the vegan movement and they're probably talking mostly about veganism and doing vegan advocacy I think that you know, it's like their other views also affect their vegan advocacy. And I think that that would come across in their vegan advocacy. And I think we like we see it when people uh, when people, you know, have those views or or have like fat shaming views. It's like those do come out in their vegan advocacy. And I think for that reason, it's like, that's why I don't want that. I Yes, I want everyone to be vegan, but no, I don't want those ideologies to seep into vegan advocacy. So I think for me, that's where the big difference lies. And I know specifically Dr. Jalapeno's questions are saying that the vegan movement has all these like 90% conservative, 10% liberal. So it's like, I would not like that because I think that me being a part of the vegan, me being a part of that vegan movement means that I'm also condoning all of these other things because I imagine that a lot of them are seeping out into their advocacy. Yeah. I mean, when I think about this, it's like, I want to be a part of an anti-oppression movement. You know, like I don't want to be a part of a vegan movement that like I know veganism centers animals and that's a very important aspect of being a part of an anti-oppression movement. But I, I, don't want to be a part of a movement that is just about the animals, you know? And so I think that I want to be a part of an overall movement that is seeking to end the oppression of all and welcoming in white nationalists and neo-Nazis and, and otherwise oppressive groups like that are like so outwardly oppressive like that. To me, that's counterproductive to the end goal of liberation for all. So I, to me, this actually sort of almost gives further fuel to my argument that I don't think it's a, a wise strategy for vegans to specifically specifically be targeting conservatives. But I think that I think that while we are st we while left-leaning people are still the majority of the vegan movement, which again it, it seems to me that because anti-oppression is even if it's just about animals, anti-oppression is still tied in with 
veganism. And for that reason, I think there's more of a correlation with left-leaning people who I think are, again, more likely to be involved in other anti-oppression movements rather than far right-leaning people. Because of that, I don't see this 90% conservative, 10% liberal thing happening anytime soon. So I think as long as we are the majority then I think that that's that's okay. And in this specific scenario that that Jordan is putting forward, ninety percent conservatives, ten percent liberal. I think I would then remove myself from that movement, and with those ten percent people, start like you were saying, Andy, an anti-oppression movement. So that it's like, yes, we're still talking about veganism, but we're also talking about these other things, and we're more in line with our thinking across the board rather than about this one specific issue. Like I think if that was the case, that's what I would do. I would leave that movement and start one that's. I'm, I'm not saying that like I myself would. Start one, but I think one would come up where it's like this is people who want to get rid of oppression, any any type of oppression. Yeah, well, I don't think you would even need to start it. I believe that <laughs> there are many folks that have already been doing that work for a long time. Yes, no, definitely, definitely, definitely. So yeah, and, and if you could snap your fingers overnight and all neo Nazis became vegan, would you do it, Paul? Oh, like. <laughs> That's such a weird thing because it's like, why just, why just them? What if you could I, just Thanos it and snap your fingers and kill half of them? <laughs> Spoiler alert. I, I think, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I would say yes, because just because they're vegan doesn't necessarily mean I'm welcoming them in, welcoming them into the vegan movement. I, I mean, is the issue that they would then want to join. Like, I don't think that many of them would want to join the vegan movement. If all of them became vegan, I don't think they would want to join the vegan movement. And if they did, yeah. So you're basically saying you would snap the fingers and be like, you're vegan now, but stay over there (laughs) kind of thing. Like you can, you can not harm animals, but stay away from our movement and don't talk to anyone ever. I guess it's like, why is that? I mean, Again, it's like I would rather have them be vegan than not vegan. I, I would rather have them be not neo Nazis as well. If I could snap my fingers and do that too, I would. You know, it's like it, Andy. If you asked me this question, if you asked the question, if I could snap my fingers and overnight all neo Nazis became loving and accepting people, but still ate meat probably like they do now, would I do that? Of course, I would do that. It's it's not like you're not asking me if I could snap my fingers and they become the ultimate compassion person, that's not what you're asking. You're asking about one specific issue. So in both cases, yes, I would, I would rather have them be better in some regards than not better at all. Right. Yeah, you're right. I guess if we're throwing out these willy nilly snap your fingers powers that it would mean, I would say we could make them vegan and not Nazis anymore as well. Yeah, exactly. No, that's what I'm saying is like, but that's, that's not the, the hypothetical that's being thrown out here. And, and and again, my, like my original, uh, hesitance with it is that they're going to then be joining the vegan movement. But I don't, even if all of the (laughs) neo-Nazis became vegan, I still think that the current vegan movement is against that, is against neo-Nazis enough that we would be like, no, 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 no. Like, don't, you're not you're not welcome here. Uh, I don't know, Paul. <laughs> like I feel I, like at I this point I pray. Nothing would surprise me at this point. But yeah, <laughs> I, I think I agree with your assessment there. Like I, I would not I guess I couldn't counter that that it's better than not. So 
So I guess we can leave that one there. Thank you for the for the thought experiment, Dr. Jalapeno. If you didn't get your question in and you want to send it to us, send it to thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought about our response to these emails and comments. Uh, let us know what we missed. Let us know where we're wrong. Go ahead, leave those iTunes and Stitcher reviews to be entered in the contest in the future. Yeah, thank you again to everyone who who sent an email. Thank you to everyone who's been supporting us. 160 episodes, Andy. That is a gosh dang lot of episodes, and and we're still we're still plugging along. <laughs> <laughs> still finding things to talk about occasionally. So yes, yes. Send in more thought experiments. That was a that was cool. Definitely. Would you rather the world be Nazi vegans or? <laughs> So Andy, From the twisted mind of Dr. Jalapeno, <laughs> a world of Nazi vegans. Andy, normally I ask, what do you have coming up? But now I'm going to ask, do you have anything coming up? I don't. You know, I have filling holiday mail orders. Um, people can order a shirt from me at CompassionCo.com if they want. But for my next actual event, I don't have anything confirmed until like April of next year. So this is this is break time for Andy. So... <laughs> Oh, Andy. But you know what? We don't have a break from. We have one last email to open. Okay. Uh, all right. One last physical piece of mail. The only physical piece of mail. <laughs> Which oddly like sounds like a book being flipped through. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the last the last physical letter. I, we get so few of these these days, Paul. Pretty much one every 10 episodes. One, <laughs> yeah, it's a solid rate. Okay, so <laughs> let me see here. This is, this is interesting. A weird format for this letter. It says... Uh, enemy, show me what you want to be. I can handle anything, even if I can't handle you. Readily, either way it better be, don't you fucking pity me. Get up, get off, and say the following seven words. We are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. Did you recognize that? It's not Limp Biscuit. No, no, don't tell me. Is that like Seether or something? Paul. Who is it? Here comes the pain. Oh, is that? <laughs> I don't know any of the lyrics to that song. I just, re- <laughs> I just realized. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. We sure do have to type an intro here. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to, uh, I know you probably looked at it and like, he's going to copy and paste something ridiculous in at the last second, but no, I just typed nothing. So Andy, here we are at another uh, decade of, ep- no, that's not. The-, <laughs> the actually point to the fact that not just sort of this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, What's the word I'm looking for? In particular, it is known. In particular, it is unknown whether the rate of suicide, alleasing, God, affected by climate, climatic. God damn it! I hate reading. <laughs> I've been vegetarian for most of a decade. <laughs> Snuck right up on me. <laughs> Maybe just be easier to go back to vegetarian. It's vegetarian. 
anything that's like a, a ground meat, like a blended meat, like a chicken nugget or a. Did you hear that dog? No. <laughs> and I'm I just. Oh, heard that. <laughs> Shut your mouth. <laughs> There's a lot of great dogs in this house. That being said, this is not an indigenous led initiative and I don't actually. <laughs> dog. <laughs> Where was I at that? What's being said, Andy? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> this being. <laughs> so uh, these are these are really good questions, Paul. Um, they, they definitely had me thinking. So I don't know. I'm. I, where do you fall on all of this? Okay. okay all right, Andy. Get throw, <laughs> throwing it right back to me. <laughs> okay. I think. So. Uh, I had something good to say. All right, Paul. So this is a, a rare, fresh reading for a blooper. Here, we got an email from David B that I wanted to read. And David B. writes in, I've said it before, but thank you for the podcast. Listening is always one of the high points of my week. And thank you specifically for the recent episode about climate change anxiety. I'm finding optimism in short supply recently, and it felt good to commiserate for a while. I record music as a hobby. And right around the time that episode was released, I was writing lyrics to a song. I had pessimistic Andy on one shoulder <laughs> and optimistic Paul on the other. And Andy won out. <laughs> it's very much about the state of the world in quite unspecific terms, but you can dance to it. It's completely free, and you have my permission to share if so inclined. Keep up the good work and have a great holiday season. Uh, David B. in Homer, Alaska. I think that's what AK is, right? Mm. Arkansas. Arkansas. Arkansas is AR, so I think we're pretty good. Pretty sure. <laughs> let's not look it up. It is no, Alaska. Let's just right. guess. So we're going to play that song right now. I thought it was a catchy little tune. I listened to it many a time and thought yeah. it would be like a fitting way to sort of send us off for the year. All right. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Here's, uh, here's David B. Take it away. Everybody lives too long and no one dies. Love
Side note to edit out it says here on this the, the website likes astronomy and I'm like of fucking course he does. <laughs> uh, I don't get that, Paul, but I don't know. I just astronomy is fucking everywhere. It's so hip, so hip right now. Are you talking about astrology? Oh, I was talking about astrology. <laughs> <laughs> What's astronomy? Just the studying the stars? Yeah. No. Oh, whatever. Still a still a doofus. <laughs>